0: hello and welcome to this gcp short produced in collaboration with friends of the podcast morris manning and martin and all about the topic of captive governance In the United States. Over the next 20 minutes, I'll be joined by Joe Holahan, partner within the firm's insurance and reinsurance practice, and making his pod debut is Dana Shepard, Associate Commissioner within the Risk Finance Bureau at the District of Columbia Department of Insurance, Securities and Banking. In the following discussion, Joe and Dana discuss how corporate governance expectations have changed or not for captives in recent years, whether captives are behind the curve and why good governance is important for numerous reasons but joe begins by outlining what he thinks good corporate governance looks like for captives today that's a pretty a pretty big question and
1: and you know i don't think i'm not going to provide a try to provide a comprehensive review of what constitutes good corporate governance you can find many primers and tutorials on that topic in you know the usual places but let me talk a little bit about the, I think there are two sort of two overarching components of good corporate governance. One is, is the proper execution by the directors and the officers of the captive of their fiduciary duties um, to the captive and its owners. And those, those are the duties of due care and loyalty. And if the directors and the offices are acting appropriately in accordance with those duties, then there are many things that flow from that. So, so you, can, you can think of that in terms of the directors meeting on an appropriate schedule to exercise their oversight responsibilities, being properly informed in making decisions about the captive or in, in approving courses of actions that are recommended by the captive's management. Um, you know and otherwise, being the directors and the officers being properly engaged in their their roles, managing and overseeing the affairs of the captive and providing oversight over the management. So that would be those are all the things that flow from those fiduciary responsibilities. There are many other niceties involved there, but but you get the idea and you can you can induce from from those duties the kinds of things that directors and officers should be doing. That's the first component. The second component I would say is, it's more of a procedural aspect to corporate governance, and it's this this aspect oftentimes gets it sometimes gets overlooked because it can take on a sort of check the box type, uh, rote sort of character. But it's ext- it's extremely important, and I, I would call this maybe uh, you could call this like a chain of command or chain of authority aspect of corporate governance. All of the authority of the managers, the directors, and officers flows from the owner or the owners of the captive. So. You have to be certain to follow their certain process processes required by the law of the domicile and by the captive zone internal governing documents concerning the meetings of the members, the election of the directors, the uh, proper documentation and, and the proper process for the directors to vote on and approve various actions. These things can seem minor in the moment, but they're critical because they ensure that any action that's taken by the directors and the officers is properly authorized and has been done with the right legal authority. And if, if you, you don't do that, then that calls into question things that the directors or the, or the officers have done. And that can become an issue later when those actions are, you know, when those are re- either examined by your regulator or um, we'll talk about this, maybe talk about this later when if the captive or the captive's, captive's administrator is, is um, looking to, to uh, is, is under sale, that can become quite quite an issue in, in that context.
2: Yes, I agree with everything that Joe said, um, and I'll put a, perhaps a, a finer point on a couple of the um, topics that he mentioned. He mentioned being engaged. That is very important. The, the most successful captives in Washington, D.C., um, I can say without a doubt, have boards that are very engaged in the oversight of the company, we'd like to see board members who have um, insurance or finance uh, expertise, but that's not always necessary. Um, as long as the as the board members are willing to get up to speed quickly and be fully engaged, that's oftentimes more important than um, than having um, you know being an expert in insurance, for example. We also like to see. Um, owners participate on the board sometimes you know you have uh, program managers uh you know actuaries and captive manager, others on the board and that's that's fine we encourage that but we like to see owners um a, a majority of the board members be comprised of of owners. Um, so that's, that's very important um, if the company is going to be successful over the long term. Another good thing that I think is sort of a best practice is we like to see periodic rotation um on and off the board um sometimes you know there'll be you know organizations where board members will serve for you know 15 20 years it seems like they're, they're always there yeah. on the board and it's, it's, it's good to have um some level of continuity and have you know the sort of the institutional knowledge about the organization but i think it's healthy that uh, board members um leave periodically and they can always come back um, but that is that is another thing we like to see. Uh, of course, we like to see regular meetings. Um, you know, we you know for, for larger uh, companies, captives that have a lot of things going, a lot of lines of insurance, and um, perhaps more more complicated captives. You know, we think ideally. Captors should meet. The board should meet at least quarterly. And what we understand that some captives that are smaller, maybe they only issue one policy uh, per year, may not have any losses or whatever. There may be you know, times where four meetings is not necessary, but certainly um, as a as a base, we believe that you know having at least three or four meetings per year certainly would be uh, uh, be considered a best practice.
0: Thanks, Dana. That's really good to have that uh, insight from DC, particularly as as we haven't had uh, much insight from DC on the podcast previously. And then some of those topics you mentioned there definitely sound familiar from some of the similar conversations I have in in other jurisdictions, particularly over here in Europe. Joe, how how do you think expectations of of corporate governance at captives has changed over the years? And one of my follow-up questions was going to be uh, are captives behind the times on on corporate governance? It, It feels to me like captives have had to kind of have been playing catch up a little bit on, on corporate governance. Is, is that fair to say?
1: Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, some expectations have changed somewhat over the years, especially um, in the US with respect to risk retention groups. There's been, you know, sort of quite a lot of change in that area where, where regulators have, with the lead of the NAIC, regulators have adopted more stringent requirements for corporate governance with respect to risk retention groups to ensure that, you know, their members are properly informed, that their member owners... Which who are the insureds understand that their their ownership their ownership rights and and, uh, and that the that uh, that the management of the RRG is um, you know acting in a, in accordance with good government standards. It, captives are a little different, I think, from you know lar- other organizations. They tend to have they don't have employees. Their operations are fairly limited or narrow in scope so in recent years at the sort of broader level corporate government there, there have been you know uh, there's been a lot of change in corporate governance more attention to companies social responsibilities uh, but those things don't come into play quite as much with captives
2: From my point of view, um, I I don't really see where captive corporate governance has really changed for the better or worse, really, in the the past several years. I mean, obviously, after the recession here in the U.S., we passed the federal level, the Dodd-Frank law that placed a lot of emphasis on corporate governance and and oversight of uh, publicly traded companies. And so it, it obviously has had some impact um, on, the, on the parents of some of our captives, which I think has maybe flowed down into the captive itself. Uh, but for the most part, the captive governance um, has been pretty consistent over this. I've been the captive director of Washington, D.C. since 2005, and I think for the most part, it's been pretty, uh, pretty steady.
0: So we've talked about how uh, corporate governance has changed over the years or, or not changed and, and kind of what the expectations are of captives today. Joe, I, I wonder if you can kind of uh, articulate for us what the value of good corporate governance is. Like, I presume it's, it shouldn't be done just for the sake of doing it. I presume there is a, a, a tangible reason why it, it it is best practice.
1: Sure. Yeah, well, I think the the primary value is to ensure that the captive's you know serving the best interests of its owner or its owner's. That's the primary goal and, and purpose for good, good corporate governance. And, but a lot of things flow from that. So Dana mentioned that the, the best run and the, the most successful captives in, history, in, in D.C. are the ones that have good corporate governance practices, because that means the directors and the officers are taking their duties of due care in the management of the captive and loyalty to the captive. Uh, in other words, avoiding conflicts of interest. They're taking those things seriously. They're except they're they're, they're um, exercising appropriate oversight over the captive, and you know, in a word, they're managing the the program well. So you know that that avoids uh, uh, most obviously that avoids running the the captive into a ditch. No one wants that. It also um, if corporate governance helps to ensure it doesn't guarantee, but it helps to it does help to ensure that the captive is successful, that the program serves the interests of the members. Of the captive, and um, and that it's it's uh, successful and uh, financially successful.
2: For, for from the regulators' perspective, the value really is attempting, and, and as Joe mentioned, it's not a guarantee, but it certainly goes a long way to ensuring that the captives remain solvent. Corporate governance is is key to that. Um, you know, having this, the standard committees like the audit committee, where members are are specifically assigned to underwriting and audit and, and the and the reserving making sure that the company is, is being operated in a way that's financially sound. Um, you don't have that where you don't have good corporate governance. And I can say um, in nearly every instance where we've had a captive that has failed, uh, it is because the, the board was not engaged was not knowledgeable they referred too much to one individual uh, chairman or someone such as that and and, and it led to difficulties and so, for, for, for from the regulator's perspective, it is, it is essential that, that the company follow good corporate governance standards if it's going to be successful over the long term.
0: And I presume, Joe, that uh, following good corporate governance standards is equally important for the individual directors and officers themselves of the captive.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. Management has a self-interest in ensuring that they, they follow good corporate governance if something were, were to happen and the captive became insolvent, you know, management generally are, are protected by, there's a legal doctrine in the US, the, the business judgment rule, management are protected in the decisions they've made um, against action by by the owners or, or even by um, a receiver acting on behalf of the captive. If they've, you know, they, they, under the business judgment rule, uh, a court will presume that directors offered uh, acted in the best interests of the captive, absent some absent some evidence um, that that they failed to follow their responsibilities for corporate governance, they failed to follow their duties of d- d- due care or, or loyalty. So the business judgment rule creates this legal presumption, but the presumption can be overcome. So if it's if a an adverse party can show that the directors acted in a way that was uh, you know constituted a conflict they were a conflict of interest that wasn't properly disclosed and dealt with or if the directors acted in a way that was you know flagrantly in violation of their duty of due care they didn't act with due care that uh, the business judgment rule can that presumption can be overcome and directors and officers can be held personally liable for their for their actions in those those cases so it's not just you know it's it's not just a matter of doing the right thing it's also a matter of of self-preservation so uh, so directors and officers have a strong incentive to act in, in ways that are consistent with good corporate, corporate governance for that reason, too.
0: So uh, lastly, then, Joe, how can you, you, you touch on it right at the start, actually, I think, regarding uh, when it comes to some instances we see, you know, whether it's group captives or RRGs or even single parent captives being sold for numerous reasons. How can poor or a neglected governance approach affect the the ultimate sale price of a captive?
1: Yeah, right. Well, I mean, captives now have been around for uh, enough years that there are a lot of mature programs out there. And one thing I see, and I have seen more than once, is you can have a very, you can actually, you know, notwithstanding what we said, you know, and I I agree with Dana, and I, I do absolutely, it's absolutely the case that good corporate governance won't necessarily, but will will help uh, lead you to a successful, financially solvent, and a, a, a program, and one that meets its business goals and serves the interests of the members. That said, it is entirely possible to have a very successful program, one where the members are very are, are well served. They're getting perhaps they're getting coverage that they can't get in the commercial market at a good price, and the and the captive can be financially successful. And nonetheless, you could have of Serious deficiencies in corporate governance, and I, I have seen this. I do see this, and oftentimes it comes in it comes uh, in the form of. I mentioned, you know, I, I see two components of corporate governance: the following the directors' fiduciary duties, and secondly, the these procedural aspects. Oftentimes, this this these failings can happen in the procedural aspects of corporate governance, where meetings haven't been held properly, a quorum wasn't pop- properly established, directors weren't properly elected and seated to the board. Um, these things can sneak up, and um, if a captive program's on, uh, up for sale, or say it's a program where there's uh, an administrator, or an MGA associated with with the captive that's been associated with the captive for many years, that entity is up for sale, and the the contract with the captive, pro, the captive is an important asset. If the I's haven't been dotted and the t's crossed on corporate governance, it can it can have a, a serious uh, negative impact on on the, the ability to, to to sell the program administrator, or in, in some cases where the, where a captive can be can be sold, um, where the program itself can be sold, you know, it can have a, a real negative effect, and it can even as in, so far as scuttling a sale. So these things become these things. Sometimes they don't seem all that important in the moment, but in retrospect, when you know you're in the middle of diligence for a sale. Yeah, then it they re- they rears its ugly head and, and can cause uh, uh, real problems.
2: Joe is absolutely correct. Uh, I was involved two years ago now, in, where a company was, in this case, was actually was under some financial stress. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. But, uh, but in this instance, there was... Uh, desire on behalf, on behalf of the captive owners to sell and transfer all the assets and liabilities to a, uh, a different company that was going to run off the captive. And during the diligence process, there were several issues related to uh, corporate governance or the lack of corporate governance that the acquiring company could not get comfortable with. It wasn't necessarily the, the price, but was, uh, there were other things related uh, to the operation of the company. And there was some back and forth uh, over several months, and at the end, the buyer backed out because, in part, uh, they were not uh, comfortable with the corporate governance practices that um, that they found at the company. And allow me to say, you know, we, you know, as, as a regulator, we do uh, our best um, to be proactive um, on the front end at the time of the application to to try to uh, make sure to the extent we're able to, that the company will, will, will adhere to the best practices. Um, the corporate governance, our, our law you know, speaks to corporate governance, but it does not get into a lot of details on what that actually looks like in practice. Um, but we do our, our best and we do background checks on all the officers and directors uh, during the application process and every once in a while we'll find someone that has a, um, some sort of a problem, criminal background or something like that and um, we will you know, obviously reject that person from serving as an officer or a director but most often you know most people won't submit a name to us if they know that that person has a, a problem. That would disqualify them. So we don't always know um, at the time of licensing whether we're, we're licensing a new company that will will take corporate governance seriously and, and, and adhere to the best practices, um, or they will totally disregard it, and, um, and then, you know, which may lead to uh, to difficulty. So it is it is somewhat challenging for us. as regulators to to address this i mean we don't we don't like to address it when it it becomes a problem we'd like to be proactive to the extent we can for the most part i'll I'll, you know i will conclude by saying like any in any other area you have we have a few companies that excel, and I would hold them up as a, as a model for good corporate governance. And we have you know a handful that totally disregard it. Obviously, don't take it seriously. And for the most part, the vast majority are somewhere in the middle.
0: Well, thank you to Joe and Dana for a thought-provoking discussion on captive governance in the United States. If you'd like more information on Morris, Manning and Martin, then do visit their Friend of the Podcast page on globalcaptivepodcast.com, where you will also find the biographies of our guests and many more bits of information as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.